according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in, uh, in Matthew 26, once again. Matthew 26, verses 31 through 35. We are in episode 21. We have combined episodes 20 and 21 into a single outline development. Having concluded everything in episode 20, the actual uh, items we're looking at presently uh, are those that are associated with episode 21. Jesus warns about further desertion. In episode 20, Jesus, uh, Judas is revealed and defects that uh, Jesus exposes who, not only that he will be betrayed, but who his uh, traitor is. And uh, having been exposed, uh, Judas departs. He leaves the upper room. He uh, goes out to fetch the, uh, the soldiers, the officers, those that are, have been assigned to uh, execute the arrest warrant against, uh, against our Lord. In the aftermath of his departure, there are additional warnings to the remaining 11 that they too are going to fall away, that they're going to fall away this night. And uh, as they uh, fall away, uh, they will need to return. And uh, the warnings there, and that's what we're going to talk about here today. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure that we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Distractions are set aside and we are humble under the authority of truth. Shall we pray? Mighty Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness day by day, moment by moment, Father. Your mercies are renewed day by day. Great is thy faithfulness. We thank you for the privilege we have to assemble today, to study, to show ourselves approved. Pray that we would learn the lessons that need to be learned, Father. This was a, this was a uh, crisis moment for our Lord. And in such times, we need to buckle down and focus on what we know to be the truth. And I thank you that in the wake of Judas's departure, he did just that. And... Uh, the disciples didn't understand it. They even uh, rejected it. They denied it. They uh, accused him of lying to them and accused the scriptures of being false. But Father, your word is never false. And I pray that we would learn the lessons we need to learn here this morning. I thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Double checking my phone. This went off uh, three weeks ago now. And I want to make sure that never happens again. There we go. Especially since my ringtone today is three times louder than it was three weeks ago. All right. Remember, we are dealing with a harmonization of all four gospel accounts. And <clears throat> the episodes here from 17 through 24 are among the trickiest of anything uh, in terms of uh, harmonizing. And primarily because the order in Luke is so different. And uh, we're not accustomed to that. We're accustomed to Luke being very careful. In the very beginning, Luke 1, uh, he points out that he was making a great effort to do everything he could sequentially, to do everything he could through uh, research and comparison and, and uh, source, uh, sourcing all of his resource. Uh, Luke was not present in the upper room that night. 
uh, interviewed people who were. And so we've been very accustomed now for seven years in studying life of Christ and harmonizing the gospel accounts that typically we're used to Matthew being the one that's out of order. And Matthew tends to re- relate things more topically and, and in terms of verbal discourses and things of that nature. And so anytime there's been a conflict between Matthew's order and Luke's order, we've typically gone with Luke. Um, but here in this case, uh, we think that the order is best presented by everybody but Luke. That Luke actually has a terrible order on these events. And in particular, we're using uh, John and the immediacy of the, uh, the warning passage that follows the desertion. When you go from verse 30 to verse 31 in John 13, I think it's it's quite clear that no sooner had that door closed. Judas walks out and the door closes. That split second later is when Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified. And he begins to warn uh, the remaining 11 disciples, the the, uh, hendeka, the the Greek word for 11. Anyway, he, he reminds the 11 disciples remaining that uh, that they too are going to be tested in this regard and they're going to fail tonight. That they're going to desert not for evil purposes, but just for fear and just for uh, lack of faith purposes. And so I think the best harmony is the one that we see here that orders them as such in uh, 17, 18 uh, episodes all the way down through 24. Uh, Episode 17 is the preparation for the Passover. Um whereby uh, there's a lot of cloak and dagger, there's a lot of uh, espionage, some spy craft at work. Jesus does not know where the dinner is going to take place. Uh, they, they've got it set up with uh, procedures to just go to the city gate and follow a man with a pitcher. And the man with a pitcher isn't even going to know who it is that's going to follow him and takes him to the upper room there and all of the procedures there. This way, Judas doesn't know ahead of time where the dinner's going to be. And Judas can't have soldiers waiting to ambush him there. And uh, it allows for that upper room to take place in privacy and safety uh, until such time as Judas is given his final three opportunities to repent, three chances to confess and come clean. So uh, episode 18 then, the Passover eaten, and then the jealousy rebuked. And we went ahead and combined that. I might have moved that, but um, keeping with A.T. Robertson's harmony, uh, the Passover eaten is covered by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The rebuking of the jealousy that's covered by Luke only, uh, verses 24 through 30 there in Luke 22, is... Uh, is an interesting section, and uh, we handled that when we when we covered episode 18. But that's a part of the puzzle you have to work in to try to sort out the order that Luke put things in. Uh, episode 19 is foot washing, only covered by John, not covered in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Part of the puzzle there is to try to figure out was did was put foot washing before the uh, communion? Was it before uh, Passover? Was it after Passover but before communion? Was it before the traitor was revealed? Was it after the traitor was revealed? Did he wash Judas's feet? Okay. Well, in the simple order of Luke, or of John rather, um, foot washing precedes the revelation of Judas, and we see that listed there. All right, then episode 20, 21, where we currently are. Then episode 22, the uh, institution of the Lord's Supper. And, and to me, this is important that Judas is not present for communion, the unbeliever does not partake of communion. Judas is an apostle, but he's an Old Testament apostle. He's an apostle of the Lamb. He is not saved, and uh, he will not cross into the church age. He'll be dead before uh, Pentecost. And um, 
Well, depending on how you understand his hanging, he'll be dead before tomorrow, right? He goes out and he hangs himself after the, uh, uh, I guess before Saturday is when he hangs himself. Um, he does not cross into the church. He is not a New Testament apostle. And uh, it is inappropriate for him to partake of the Lord's Supper. And so I enjoy, I like the way that episode 22 is placed in that particular sequence. All right, and then his final speech to the apostles while they are en route to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's actually a walking speech when they depart the upper room and walk from there to uh, Gethsemane. And then episode 24 is the grief, grief of Gethsemane itself. So there's the, uh, the harmony of what we're looking at. Now, we have covered six points of study, and we are ready now for main point seven. For main point seven. And this is where my slide went weird last week. There we go. Slide 12. I'm going to cover four slides today if the Lord lets us get this far. All right. Point seven then in the outline. Judas' departure occasions warnings to the eleven. Warnings to the eleven. And I asked you to turn to Matthew 26, and that's where I'm going to be here in just a split second. But I do want to highlight out of John 13 that immediacy between verse 30 and verse 31. And um, he tells uh, Judas, uh, what you do, do quickly in John 13:27. Nobody at the table knew why he said that. Uh, but after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately and it was night. Therefore, when he had gone out, when he had gone out at that moment, as the door closed, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. All right. And these time markers are vital. We've been seven years. We've been in this in this study. And we've seen again and again and again. His hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. Now we find that his hour had come. It is now his hour. His hour had come. And the moment his hour had come, he goes to his father in prayer and he says, Father, glorify your name. Glorify your son so that your son can glorify thee. And the father says, I have both glorified it. I will glorify it again. And uh, so here we are. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. So that that immediacy, the moment the the traitor departs, it's uh, it's time to warn the eleven. And so I think this is the best context here now in Matthew 26 verses 31 through 35. Matthew 26 verses 31 through 35. And as I say, it's a little bit out of order in the Matthew record. In Matthew, we left off with verse 25 with Judas Iscariot's denial. Surely it is not I, Rabbi. And Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. And, uh, and then we have the communion service in uh, 26 through 30. I think it's better to move that later. So looking at verse 31 then. Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, <laughs> but Peter said to him, all right, <laughs> so what are we dealing with here? And this is so extraordinary. And this is so Peter. 
You would think Peter would have learned this lesson when uh, back in chapter 16. And when Jesus had to say, uh, well, hold your finger there. Let's look at this. Matthew 16. When uh, he was first starting to tell them about the cross and first starting to tell them about um, being betrayed. And you remember the um, the uh, the get me behind thee Satan. Okay, and he has this tremendous uh, victory here, followed by a tremendous defeat. All right. So Matthew 16, we notice um, starting in verse 13, who do the people say the son of man is? And then Peter has this shining moment. Thou art Christ, son of the living God. And and blessed are you, Simon Barjona and all. Everything is wonderful here for Peter. Shining moment. <laughs> Gold star, right? I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And Peter's just doing great. And then you read the next verse, right? And from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. That's not popular, you know, and disciples, you got to decide, you know, do you only do you only feed on the word of God when it's something you agree with, when it's something you like, when it's something pleasant? Or do you humble yourself under the authority of doctrine when it's something not pleasant, something you don't like? So Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. All right, so Jesus has a message. He must go to Jerusalem. It's a have to. It's a must. It's the plan of God. It's the will of God. He has to die and he has to rise again on the third day. And Peter says, no, I disagree with that. I disagree with that. And so he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. Now, what's Satan? Satan's an adversary. And when you disagree with the plan of God, what are you doing? Whose side are you on? You're on Satan's side. You're putting yourself in the role of adversary. You're a stumbling block to me. Be a temptation for, for the Lord to, because of his fondness for Peter or whatever, to listen to what Peter thinks about something. When uh, you, th you think Jesus likes this any better than Peter does. Oh, Jesus doesn't like it any better. He dislikes it just as much. But he's humble to obey the plan of God. And Peter's not. For you're not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. So if you've got a brother in Christ in this, or a sister, or somebody that's in this circumstance, their mind is not set on God's interest. They're looking at things as they are outwardly, not inwardly. You understand that we've got an angelic conflict uh, battle to fight here related to the... Um, things we're presently studying in second corinthians chapter 10 we got to take thoughts captive and we can't let somebody else's thoughts become our thoughts saying you know what yeah peter he's got a point yeah this shouldn't happen to me i don't deserve this yeah peter you're right there i'm better than that if you start listening to poisonous thoughts no get behind me satan you're a stumbling block to me so it was a tremendous failure there on peter's part and you would think he might have learned from that, but no, we see the same thing happening here. Back to Matthew 26 then. That was Matthew 16. And now we have Matthew 26. And Peter's doing the exact same thing. All of them, all the, not just Peter, Peter and the ten. Okay? So here's Jesus again. You will fall away because of me this night. There's the utterance of a prophet. This is a prophecy. This is a short-term prophecy. And it ought to encourage them. I'll give you that here in a sub-point here in just a moment. 
For it is written, not only is it an uttered prophecy given by Jesus Christ, but it is compatible with, and it is a citation of a written prophecy that's in the inspired canon of Scripture. He's actually citing Zechariah 13.7 at this moment. For it is written, it is written, I love it, it is written. To me, it is written as my second favorite perfect passive participle right behind it is finished all right i love it is finished because it's past it's complete it's done it's eternal and i love it is written because it is past it is complete it is eternal satan tempted the lord three times all three times he said it is written it is written it's the, it's the authority of scripture it's the participle that validates our bibliology why we can search the scriptures, see if these things are so, because it is written. All right. You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd. Who's the shepherd? Jesus is the shepherd. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me. I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. After I have been raised. And I, this is just so sweet. You know, his faith, his confidence, he knows he's going to die, but he knows he's going to be raised. It's like, uh, it's like uh, Abraham taking Isaac up the mountain and telling the servants, you wait right here. We're going to go up there. We're going to come back. Okay. When you read that in Genesis 21, you realize, man, Abraham had some faith. We're going up. We're coming back. And he knew he was going up there to kill his son. But he said, we're coming back. So when I... After I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. There's another prophecy. But Peter said to him, I don't agree. No, this isn't right. I don't like this. You're wrong. Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Not me. I would never do that. And what's he saying? You're a false prophet. <laughs> You're lying. Uh, is he really accusing Jesus of being a false prophet? You've got to stone a false prophet. What are you doing? Is he lying? He's the way, the truth, and the life. In him is no lie. It's impossible for God to lie. Not only is he accusing Jesus of lying and being wrong, he's also saying the Scripture is not true. Because the Lord not only uttered a prophecy, he cited Zechariah 13. So Peter says, no. You're wrong. I disagree. And uh, I've got a better interpretation of that Zechariah passage. How about that? <laughs> Is that what he's really saying here? Well, now he would never put it into words like that, of course. But is that not what he's saying? That's exactly what he's saying. Jesus teaches the 11 that Zechariah 13, 7 is about to be fulfilled. This is the point you were not able to read last week because when I clicked the button, all that showed up was just the A. So I fixed that. Subpoint so A. Jesus teaches the 11 that Zechariah 13.7 is about to be fulfilled. He says, as it is written. For it is written. For it is written. 
He then advises them to meet him in Galilee after his resurrection. So he gives them a doctrinal understanding and he advises them what their application has to be. It's kind of like uh, saying, well, you know, if you commit a sin, what is the will of God? The will of God is for you to confess that sin. The will of God for you is to repent, to confess your sin, to, to forsake the sin, to, uh, to be cleansed from all unrighteousness and to move on. And you get doctrinal information like that based on accurate Bible teaching. What you don't want to do is just live in denial and say, oh, no, 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 I'm not ever going to sin again. <laughs> all right. Next time you do sin, your mechanism is called confession. First John 1, 9. And here's something similar. You're going to fall away. And you're going to fall away tonight. And, uh, but after I've been raised, we'll go ahead of you to Galilee. So when you recover from your fear, when you get back in faith, when you get back in fellowship, you remember this. Meet me in Galilee. You don't need to be here in town. Meet me in Galilee. All right. After I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Now, they're going to disobey. It's, going to, it's kind of interesting. We'll, we'll, we'll see the post-resurrection ministry and appearances of Christ and uh, different things there. Peter and the other ten called Jesus a liar and accused the Scriptures of being inaccurate. This is point B in the outline. Peter and the other ten. You spot that there in verse 35. Peter and the other ten called Jesus a liar and accused the Scriptures of being inaccurate. They all said the same thing. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing too. They were all saying the same thing. Surely not I, Lord. Surely not I, Lord. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? You know, he said, one of you will betray me. And they all went through this. Surely not I, Lord. Surely not I, Lord. Then the betrayer leaves, and instead of saying, one of you will now flee, one of you now will be scattered, he now says, all of you will be scattered. Surely not I, Lord. Surely not I, Lord. Well, I said all of you, didn't I? <laughs> all of you means all of you. You don't mean me, of course. You must have been talking about them. <laughs> no. He said all, he meant all. Again, we have it here in Matthew 26, 33 through 35. The parallel accounts in Mark are identical. Uh, verse 28 is Jesus' warning. I'm sorry, verse 27 is the warning and the citation of Zechariah. 28 is the instruction to meet him in Galilee. And then 29 through 31 are the verses in Mark 14 there, that uh, record Peter's response and the agreement on the part of the other ten disciples. And uh, it's almost identical language to what we have in the Matthew account. The uh, Peter kept saying insistently, some of the vocabulary is a little bit tweaked, but even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were also saying the same thing, all of them. All of them. Now, this becomes the test. This becomes the volitional test. Again, if a, if a doctrine is being taught, you have to accept whether it's truly God's word or not. 
And if it's God's word, you have to identify, even though I don't like it, this is what it is. And I have to submit to it and I have to acknowledge it and I have to learn from it and I have to adjust my thinking. And uh, I certainly don't want to call the Lord a liar. And, uh, and I don't want to um, condemn the scriptures, accuse the scriptures of being inaccurate or unfair or wrong. You realize God has exalted his word above his own name. And so for me to besmirch that, for me to mock the word of God, is blasphemy against God's own name. And yet it happens all the time. And this is uh, part of what occurs when, uh, when uh, believers line themselves up for divine discipline. Simply because they don't like what they're hearing. Yeah, becomes a volitional test, doesn't it? Don't, don't argue with me. Go to the scriptures. Okay? And in, uh, unlike the Lord, <laughs> I might be wrong. All right? So uh, don't just uh, get mad because Pastor Bob said something. Check it out. Find out if the Bible really says that. And if the Bible really says that, then... Be honest with yourself and say, all right, I'm not mad at Pastor Bob. I'm mad at God. I'm mad at what the Bible says. At least be that honest. All right. Jesus, uh, point C. Jesus prophesies a short-term prophecy which should encourage the 11 as to everything else. Rather than hate this message, they should be excited about it. This is a short-term prophecy. This is a prophecy that will be fulfilled before tomorrow. <laughs> Jesus prophesies a short-term prophecy which should encourage the eleven as to everything else that he will communicate between the upper room and the Garden of Gethsemane. There's going to be a walking message. A walking message between the upper room and the Garden of Gethsemane. And that walking message is what we have in John 14 through 17. And it is some awesome passages of Scripture. It deals with the coming Holy Spirit. It deals with abiding in Christ and bearing fruit. It deals with not letting your heart be troubled. It deals with um, the, the great high priestly prayer to the Father in John 17, what I believe is the real Lord's Prayer in John 17. A tremendous, tremendous message. One that's even a preview of mystery doctrine related to the church age. And we'll, we'll spend some time with that so that we're clear. Mystery is not revealed until Pentecost and until mystery doctrine can be revealed to the apostles. But Jesus is an apostle, the apostle and high priest of our confession. And the message he gives in John 14 through 17 pertains to the church. And it is a message pre Mystery revelation, but it is a message that will only be understood after Pentecost. It's recorded before Pentecost. I, I'm sorry, it's spoken before Pentecost. Not recorded until decades later when John finally gets around to writing this gospel. But it was spoken pre-Pentecost to the eleven who would become church age apostles on the day of Pentecost. And uh, the recognition of, of those chapters as being church age applicable uh, is, is very important to understand. And we'll spend some time on that. 
So Jesus prophesies a short-term prophecy. And what, remember, what's the purpose for short-term prophecies? To validate the legitimacy of the prophet and to grant the encouragement pertaining to the long-term prophecies. And we see this very common in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, all these guys. Short-term prophecies, long-term prophecies. Now, not, the short-term is not always the next morning. Sometimes it's, but sometimes it is. You know, this time tomorrow, a young man is going to come here from the tribe of Benjamin looking for his father's donkeys. Hmm. Maybe that's important. And this time tomorrow, what happens? Young man from the tribe of Benjamin showed up looking for his father's donkeys. And so that's the man that's supposed to be anointed king. Okay. Why is that important? One day prophecies, overnight prophecies fulfilled literally, immediately, exactly. All right. What do they tell us about the long-term prophecies? What do they say, you know, when Samuel wants to talk about maybe, uh, oh, the Davidic covenant? You think that's important? Can we, do we have any idea that that's going to be literal, fulfilled at some point of time? Sure. So we see how this works. Jesus prophesies a short-term prophecy which should encourage the eleven as to everything else he will communicate between the upper room and the garden of Gethsemane. And so uh, you will fall away. I will rise again and I will go before you to Galilee. These are the short-term prophecies. And as they're fulfilled, uh, they ought to be encouraged. Uh, so Matthew 26, uh, Mark 14, Luke 22, same thing. Luke 22, verses 34 and 39. Ah, here's another prophecy. The rooster, uh, this is what I was talking about here. The uh, rooster will not crow today until you have denied me three times that you know me. There's a prophecy. So add that. You'll fall away. The rooster will crow. You'll deny me three times. And after I rise, I'll go ahead of you to Galilee. And um, this ought to be an encouragement to them. <laughs> then... Um, John 13, verses 36 through 38. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Again, it ought to be encouraging. John 14, verses 28 through 31. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now, part of what we're going to discuss is why is it they had such a hard time understanding what he was saying? Why is it that they could not accept by faith what he was talking about? Why is it that they had to be standing in the empty tomb looking down at the burial cloth before they finally believed? We read about John chapter 20. What were the obstacles that were, that, that was, uh, that were hindering them from accepting this? We're going to, as we study it, we're going to identify at least two, possibly three different components. Here's a big one. It's a love deficiency. It's a love deficiency. It's not, uh, 
You could say it's a faith deficiency. That's in another passage. We'll talk about faith deficiency and what, what does it take to strengthen faith. <clears throat> but what if you have sufficient faith, but there are other things that hinder, hinder your acceptance of, of doctrinal truth? Well, here's one of them. If you loved me, and this is a counterfactual, this is a statement contrary to fact, a second-class condition, it is not true. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. But now they didn't rejoice, did they? What does that tell you? They didn't love him. That's why this question, this uh, do you love me, comes up so powerfully in, in chapter 21. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now I've told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. And part of... What's going to strengthen their faith is actually observing answers to prayer, actually observing the plan of God unfold, actually observing the faithfulness of Scripture. It would have been better if they could have uh, believed without seeing it, if they would have trusted in the assurance of Scripture prior to seeing the answers to prayer, the plan unfold, the things fulfilled. But at the very last, seeing them fulfilled, better late than never, <laughs> they can finally catch on and say, man, I should have trusted this weeks ago, months ago, years ago, years ago. So there are faith deficiencies and there are love deficiencies. And I think in this case, there's both. One produces the other. I will not speak much more with you for the ruler of the uh, world is coming and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the father, I do exactly as the father commanded me. Come, get up, let us go from here and then the uh, the actual walking begins with the come let us go from here so uh, i think the content of john 13 and 14 is still in the upper room and then the uh, departing of the upper room uh, is in between 14 and 15 and then chapters 15 and 16 and 17 all take place while they're walking to the garden and then um it's not until John 18 that uh, they cross the ravine of the Kidron and uh, arrive at the garden entrance. So, I don't mind if you still want to call it the upper room discourse. I'm going to still call it the upper room discourse for the rest of my time on this planet. But, if you really want to be technical about it, we can call it the upper room and on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane discourse. Because it's only a couple of chapters in the upper room and then three more chapters uh, on the walk to the garden. All right. Point D. Let's go over to Luke. There's one final element here. Well, a couple final elements we've got to deal with. Point D. Luke records an important exhortation. Luke records an important exhortation. Regarding the intensified stage of the angelic conflict. And it's not recorded by Matthew, Mark, or John, but it is here in Luke. Luke 22, 31 through 38. And I believe that this is a passage that has to be incorporated into any intermediate or advanced doctrinal study pertaining to angelic conflict. Or even a basic doctrinal study pertaining to angelic conflict. Agonology can recognize this and needs to recognize this. And the church age is the age of spiritual sifting. 
spiritual sifting. We live in the intensified stage of the angelic conflict. Did Israel have conflict? Of course. Did the Gentiles have conflict? Absolutely. But what they dealt with compared to what the church deals with is no comparison. They didn't have armor. They didn't have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They didn't have the spiritual resources. They weren't one body in Christ. They weren't a heavenly citizenship. They didn't operate in the patriological priesthood like we do, functioning in the Holy of Holies in the third heaven. This wrestling against uh, principalities and powers, rulers and authorities, they never dealt anything related to that in their stewardships, either Israel or the Gentiles. So Luke 22, verses 31 through 38. And again, this is a little choppy because of the, the order that Luke records this night in here in this chapter. But we'll just pick up here. There's a promise in verses 28 through 30. And I forget. We already covered that related to episode 18. Um, but verse, starting in verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. Either demanded or demanded permission. Either way, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. What does verse 32 say? Does it say, but that request was ridiculous, so it was rejected immediately? Is that what it says? No. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Satan demanded and Jesus requested. Jesus went to the Father in prayer and asked, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat and Jesus engaged in an intercessory prayer ministry as our advocate to God the Father. Recognize that this is characteristic of the church age. This is a preview before Pentecost, before the mysteries unveiled. But this demonstrates Jesus Christ's recognition of the new stewardship coming on the way and his new role. And what it is that he's going to be expected to do throughout the entirety. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What it is, the new role that Jesus Christ is going to have as the head of the church. Seated at the Father's right hand. Our advocate. Our intercessor. But I have prayed for you. That your faith may not fail. In you, when once you have turned again. Jesus prayed that their faith may not fail, but it's going to fail. It's going to fail. And you, and once you have turned again, when you've repented, when you've returned, when you've been restored to fellowship, when you're back to the light, strengthen your brothers. Now, this is, this is amazing Because Jesus has a prayer request that your faith may not fail. A prayer request that the Father does not answer with a yes answer every single time. Jesus prays for us every single time that our faith may not fail. But that prayer is not always answered with a yes because what happens, sometimes our faith does fail. Sometimes that prayer is answered with a no. The Father is not going to answer Jesus' prayer with a yes in contradiction, overruling our own willfulness, our own carnality, our own volition. 
Jesus does not always get everything he asks for. Do you notice that? He is actually asking that your faith may not fail. He's asking for something that would be the optimum will of God, but not compatible with the permissive will of God. In the fact that God the Father is going to allow for you and I to fail. Within boundaries, within limits, of course, the overruling will of God will then step in and hinder uh, <laughs> too much damage from being done. All right. But this, your faith may not fail, is an interesting prayer. And we can imitate it, but at the same time we imitate it, we need to recognize that it is, it is a prayer that is voiced according to the optimum will of God. And it may, in fact, be in violation of the permissive will of God. Like if we pray that someone be in good health, even as their soul prospers, right? Well, in the optimum will of God, sure. But in the permissive will of God, will we have times of sickness? Will we have times of, of, uh, of infirmity and affliction? Of course. And so you, you pray for your children that their faith may not fail. You pray, you know, parents pray for their children, husbands pray for their wives, uh, pastors pray for their flocks. That believers will always maintain a hunger and an appetite for the Word of God. Is it wrong to pray that? No, Jesus is praying for that right here. But when, when a, uh, a believer in the church, when their appetite flags, when they go carnal, when they stop taking in the truth, when they abandon church, when they flake out, you know, does that mean the pastor's prayers were wrong? The pastor's prayers were insufficient? That they failed? If the pastor would have just prayed harder, then that believer wouldn't have flaked out? Hmm. Well, that's like saying it's Jesus' fault here. That he prayed that their faith might not fail. That their faith failed. And he told them it was going to fail. So it's not like Jesus should have prayed harder. Or that it's Jesus' fault because he didn't pray hard enough. And if he'd have been a better shepherd, then that wouldn't have happened. No, he already taught them. The shepherd is going to be struck down. The sheep are going to be scattered. So I think uh, we got some principles here that we can glean out of this related to prayer and what do we pray in terms of the optimum will of God. Of course we pray that their faith may not fail. Of course we pray that our children will always hunger after the Word of God. And uh, even when it doesn't, we'll pray that it'll start again and keep on praying that way. Because that is the Father's optimum will. That's His directive will. All right. When you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So as soon as you're back in fellowship, right, you tell your child, I'm not going to talk to you while you're angry. When you're back in fellowship, come talk to me. I'm not out of fellowship. We're going to talk about this now. When you're back in fellowship, come talk to me. <laughs> okay? Now, he said to him, Lord, with you, I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. No. Here, once again, the rooster will not crow today until you've denied three times that you know me. Short-term prophecy. Before the sun rises, here's this rooster crowing three different times. 
What does that tell the disciples about Satan? What does that tell the disciples about the sifting like wheat demand? You think the Lord knows what he's talking about? You think there's any truth to that? Of course there's truth to that. I find it interesting. Satan demanded, but Jesus requested. Point one. Satan demanded, but Jesus requested. What a contrast. The contrast of arrogance and humility. Going to the Father in prayer versus stomping before the Father's throne of grace and demanding what you want to do. Our advocate before the Father is a tremendous blessing, and it's a blessing for our church age. You know, there were limited um, applications to be made in the Old Testament. I think in Job and in Zechariah, we see little clues of things that were not fully implemented until the current stewardship. You know, in Job 1 and 2, is it, is it fair to say that, that, uh, that well, let's... I don't want to skip through this too quickly. You know the story of Job 1 and 2. You know the story in those chapters. Events are happening on earth and angels are watching. And the Lord has a question for, uh, for Satan. And Satan makes demands. He says, well, it's only because you've hedged him about. He only serves you because you take care of him. If you touched him, he'd, he'd curse you to your face. And so the father there, it's interesting, the father there, in permissive will, allows Satan to afflict Job. And he goes out and kills all his children and, and uh, leaves his wife there. All right. <laughs> and it's interesting. Now, that's not truly a, an advocate role, but it approaches that. It's a preview it's an element in the sense that God will always maintain sovereignty over all angelic activity. And so he will limit what Satan is permitted to do. He will set boundaries to hedge about believers in protection and to, to draw um, limitations upon what uh, fallen angels are permitted to do. And when he does so, it's so that they can learn. He has questions for them. What are you learning from this? What are you observing from this? And all the indications are in that chapter that the angels came and they reported at appointed times. They had whatever increment, whatever, you know, they check in every thousand years and report what they learned. Or they check in every, it has to be more (laughs) quicker than that. Uh, Between chapter one and chapter two, we saw two check-ins. And maybe it was, you know, year by year or whatever it was. It was an appointed time that the sons of God would appear before God and Satan also appeared among them. The idea is that the fallen angels have no business being there, but they intrude upon it. While the elect angels are reporting based on the grace they've observed and and the doctrine they've learned. We have another glimmer in Zechariah chapter 3. This is not truly an advocate, but we see, it's not like a church age advocate, but we do see a uh, component here. Something that would not be thought of as a preview for our own day and age. Zechariah chapter 3, he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. 
Remember, when Satan is thrown down in the tribulation, he's called the accuser of our brethren who accuses them before the Father day and night. And here we actually see a scene in heaven where he's doing just that. And so the, uh, the protection functions that we see in Job were a feature of the Gentile stewardship. I think the, um, the uh, defense function that we see here in Zechariah was added to that in a part of Israel stewardship. And then I think the fullness of what we have in the church age includes both the Job activities, the Zechariah activities, and then the First John activities and what we see related in the New Testament for our advocate before the Father's throne today. But Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now this is, uh, uh, he's, this, he's representing the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem. This is a defense pertaining to Israel's corporate election and the role that he has here. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. Again he said to him, See, I have taken away your iniquity from you and will clothe you with festal robes. Then I said, then I said here's Zechariah making a suggestion. <laughs> All right, he's observing this vision. I don't believe this was a, an, a literal scene in heaven, but this is a, a representative vision to, to communicate a truth. What happens at the moment that we accept Christ as our Savior? What happens at the moment we're saved? When we're delivered out of the domain of darkness and delivered into the kingdom of His beloved Son. When we pass from death into life at the moment of our faith acceptance. When we become regenerate and born again. Do we have our old garments taken away? The filthy garments removed? The, the new... Uh, as I've taken your iniquity away from you, I'll clothe you with festal robes. Then I said, then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head. Wow, they, they took Zechariah's uh, suggestion here at this point. <laughs> and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. All right, then the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and if you will perform my service, then you will also govern my house and will have charge of my courts and I will grant you free access among these who are standing here, fulfilling the plan of God on earth with prayer access to the Father. Now, Zechariah had that as the high priest of the Levitical priesthood for the nation of Israel. But guess what? You and I all have this in our priesthood in Christ. Far greater than anything that was uh, presented here. So, we have uh, previews in the Old Testament to what an advocate function might be. We have our reality in the New Testament, the reality for the church, far greater than anything that um, Israel ever dreamed of or the Gentiles ever dreamed of. And I guess in the same order is fine. Romans 8.34, Hebrews 7.25, Hebrews 9.24, and 1 John 2.1. If I could add anything to that, I would add the verse we saw uh, a little bit earlier today in Matthew 16, the, the passage that dealt with binding and loosing. What you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. What you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. The fact that the church age is an age that interfaces between heaven and earth all the time, constantly. 
And that's true in our determinations. That's true in our judgments. That's true in our, in our discernment. That's true in our worship. That's true in our prayers. That's true in our giving. That's true in our angelic conflict. We are constantly interfacing with the invisible realm against principalities and powers, demons, fallen angels. That's a reality in the church age that they barely had glimpses of in the Old Testament. So I would add to that the the Matthew 16 passage that we saw a little bit ago. But as far as these verses here go, Romans 8 and verse 34. Hopefully none of these are new to you. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. Now, what's the difference between this and Zechariah 3? In Zechariah, didn't we see Satan as an accuser? Didn't we see the Lord at the right hand as the defender? You say, well, it's all the same then. Big difference. Joshua, the high priest defender in Zechariah 3, was not the resurrected, glorified, exalted, seated Jesus Christ in victory. It was the angel of the Lord. It was the Old Testament incarnation of, of the Son of God. The angel of the Lord was the defender of Israel. Notice who this is. The one, uh, G- Christ Jesus. The one who died. The crucified Christ Jesus. Yes, rather, the one who was raised, the one who was died for our <clears throat> died for our redemption, raised for our justification. The one who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. What does that mean? Well, he was at the right hand before, but oh, now it's so much greater. Because now he is seated at the right hand of God on a throne. Now he has got a name exalted above every name that is named, both in this age and in the age to come. The Christ Jesus who died, the Christ Jesus who was raised, the Christ Jesus who is at the right hand of God, the glorified, victorious apostle and high priest of our confession, not, not the angel of the Lord defending the high priest of the Old Testament confession. And if that distinction does not make sense, then let me know. We'll work on it some more. Who is at the right hand of God, who will who also intercedes for us, intercedes for us so much more than just simply giving a defense when an accusation comes in. How about interceding for us ahead of time before an accusation comes in, interceding for us before our faith fails, asking the father that our faith will never fail. Interceding for us day by day, moment by moment. Whoever liveth to make intercession for us. A high priest who does not need to first make intercession for himself. A high priest who is perfect in all his ways. A high priest who doesn't end his term of office because he dies. But a high priest who abides in his office perpetually, eternally. Who prays for us day and night because where he is, there is no night. He's at the right hand of God. He intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? You know how secure we are? He's praying for us constantly. What's going to separate us from Him? We are baptized into union with Christ. It is not possible to separate us 
from Christ. It goes on to describe that. All right, Hebrews 7, 25. Hebrews 9, 24. Hebrews is the uh, church age Leviticus. Remember that? <laughs> all right. And yet it's not Leviticus because we don't have all the ritual and procedure and externals. It's all internals and it's all reality. It's the day-by-day faith instead of the feasts and observances and calendars and things of that nature. I'm trembling because tomorrow morning I start Leviticus in my daily scripture reading. You know, Bible scripture reading is great through Genesis, Job, and Exodus. So tomorrow's the day. And this year, I'm doing something new. I'm reading the Holman from my English text, the Holman Christian Standard Bible. I'm reading the Hebrew text and I'm reading the Greek Septuagint. And it's, I've never tried this before. And it's, it's time consuming. But I'll be glad when it's over. <laughs> and hopefully I'll be edified by the discipline, by the activity. It's certainly showing me how rusty my Hebrew's gotten over the years. Now, Hebrews 7.25 And uh, what a glory. You know, when you look at the old priesthood in Levi, and it never can make anybody perfect. You know, if, if verse 11 says, if perfection was through Levitical priesthood, that'd be it, right? What further need was there for another priest to arise? According to the order of Melchizedek, there'd be no need for that. If, if Levitical priesthood brought about perfection, well, hey, just go with that. And the father could have saved his son and not sacrificed uh, any of that. But it's evident that uh, that wasn't going to happen. And uh, here comes our new priest, our high priest, Jesus Christ, according to the likeness of Melchizedek. Verse 16 says, who became such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement. He was born of the wrong tribe. He never could have been a Levitical priest. He was from Judah. But according to the power of an indestructible life, this qualifies him as a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And guess what? That's why you get to be a priest too. After the order of Melchizedek, you and me. Our parents weren't Levites. We're not a part of that priesthood. But we have an indestructible life, do we not? Now in Christ, we have all the requirements he has here related to his priesthood. And we get to occupy this priesthood. You are a priest forever. Verse 18, on the one hand, there's a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. All it did was condemn and point to the need for grace. On the other hand, there's the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. We don't just approach a mercy seat. We approach Jesus is our mercy seat. We approach a throne of grace. All right, so much more. Also, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. Every generation needed a new high priest because the old high priest kept getting older and dying. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he's able also to save forever, save to the uttermost. Those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You think he can lose your salvation? Are you kidding me? You think he can forsake his eternal priesthood? 
All right. He ever lives to make intercession for them. I think, by the way, I think this passage speaks more to phase two salvation than phase one salvation. I'll be honest with you related to that. All right. Hebrews 9.24. Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one. Never went in there. Didn't have to go in there. Wasn't qualified to go in there. There's no point in going in there. By the time he finished his work on the cross, that veil was rent in two anyway. Why go into an empty room that had no Ark of the Covenant, had no glory? He didn't enter the holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one. But he entered into heaven itself, the true one, the holy of holies in the Father's presence, now to appear in the presence of God the Father for us. And that's where he is. And he abides that daily, continuously. That's where we are as we study. And then finally, 1 John 2, 1. I'm a minute, I'm a minute long. 1 John 2, 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He himself is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only. It is not only for believers, but also for those of the whole world. There's our advocate with the Father. We've got an advocate with the Father and we've got an advocate with us. He says, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, then the advocate cannot come, the helper, the, the parakletos. And so now we have two. One in us is the indwelling, abiding influence of the Holy Spirit and one at the right hand of the Father, that is Jesus Christ, the righteous. Thank you, Father, for this day, for this truth. And I pray as we continue to study the Lord's warnings to his disciples in the upper room that, uh, that we would be humble and not be like Peter and not deny that we would ever do that, Father. We, we would do that, and we have in the past, and we likely will again. We don't want to. We ask that we never will. But, Father, I thank you that if we do, we have an advocate before you, Jesus Christ the righteous. And I pray that we would learn to keep short accounts, that we would learn to minimize our time in darkness and maximize our time in the light. Father, work in us. Thank you that such uh, lessons are coming here in Life of Christ. They're coming to us in Second Corinthians chapter 10 in, in the angelic conflict se- uh, sections. They're coming to us in Romans chapter 6 in uh, the, uh, the conflict there between the Holy Spirit and the, and the flesh. And I pray that uh, believers here would wake up and realize when you're, when you're giving us a message three times over, uh, you, you hold us to it, Father. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.